Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have Sean Maslick with me. And Sean has been so gracious. He's interviewed me multiple times on his podcast, The Most Hated F Word. And Sean is a great guy. He's a Canadian, which, I mean, I think is just fantastic. But he's so passionate about positive psychology and helping guys especially understand their relationship with money. And Sean, you know, there's so many women out there helping women with their relationship with money, but I don't see a lot of guys out there doing the same kind of thing. There's plenty of guys saying, oh, do crypto or you should be taxed this or investing that. But not a lot of guys are out there saying like, let's talk about our feelings. And this is not like (laughs) mushy gushy, like, ooh, but this is legit based in real science and the importance of really knowing your inner world. And so... I know you've been on your own journey of exploring and better understanding that. And I really hope that you can share with everyone what that's been like for you. And we'll just see where this great conversation goes. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Ed, for having me on. And uh, I really appreciate the work you're doing. And the work around couples is just so, so important. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Absolutely. So, Sean, let's just dive straight into it. Toxic masculinity. Man, that's a hot word right now. What does that mean from your perspective? So for me, I, I'm really good at distracting myself by staying like focused on something. And the, the story that I've been playing out for myself for years and years was I got to build money for my family. I got to come financially free. Then the fire movement happened. I'm like, this is it. Like fire, financially independence, retire early. I know what I'm doing. I'm a financial planner. I'm telling myself this in my head as I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, I know what I'm doing. I know what we need to do for our finances. And that's what I'm telling myself. Then what I actually say is, trust me, I've got this. It's okay. I'll take care of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I thought I was taking care of us. I thought I was being like this man and being really, really open and being like, it's okay. I'm like validating her feelings that, you know what, you probably are concerned because you don't know where any of our money is, but I've got this. And I thought it was very novel of myself. And I thought I was just this like awesome husband and dad and relationship partner. And then I started to realize that this very thing that I clung on to money and my belief I had it figured out was the one thing like distancing myself from my relationship with my wife as we matured in and we're about 16 years into our relationship that I silenced her unconsciously. And I mean, there's a lot of story behind this, but what I didn't realize is that in her life growing up, males represented some form of, uh, she had some anger around males growing up and not myself, but I was the step-in individual who was not being kind and compassionate to feel that. And I was fulfilling that role that she always had 
around males for, for valid reasons growing up. And there was this cycle that I was totally oblivious to because I was afraid to peek inside of myself. And so for me, male or toxic masculinity is just this idea, this idea that we are great and we know everything and the systems that actually have been created around us perpetuate that and kind of put us on this pedestal that especially around money that we think we can go to work, come home, crack a beer, put our feet up and be emotionally detached. <laughs> so as a, as a, an attempt to discover my own inner world and those critical emotions and regain some intimacy in my relationship, that's the journey I'm on right now. Wow, that's incredible. I, that was way better. I mean, I knew you would give a great answer. Let me just start there. But that like blew the doors off of it. And, you know, because what I heard on one level is this, you know, that concept, I'm a good guy, I'm a great guy, I'm doing the right mm. thing, I have a good intent, I'm going to take care of it, you're going to be provided for, right? Which is, I mean, I resonate with that deeply. And I think most guys listening to this, like, they're going to be like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Or that's what I failed at doing. And I feel bad about myself for not doing that. Mm -hmm. But what's really on the other side of that, that you're discovering that is more of a healthy masculinity, especially as it relates to, to money in your intimate relationship. So what's more on the healthy side that I'm feeling? Yeah. So like, you know, if it's, I'm going to take care of everything, I'm going to be the provider. I know everything about how money works. You don't have to worry about it. That's kind of on the toxic masculinity side. Mm -hmm, mm. On the healthy masculinity side, what, what does that look like, sound like, feel like? What are you finding there? I'm finding this idea of moving more from me to us and like looking at a relationship as an us. Um, so I might, logically, I might know um, from a technical perspective, what say it's finances, what we sure. should... I mean, that's a strong word, but what we can do with our money. Right. And, you know, if I, if I was getting audited by a financial planner, maybe those decisions were correct, but that's going away from the us of what I'm learning on relationship. And the us, I think, as we discover our own relationships is, is what really matters, not how what's the ROI on our investment. That matters to a degree, but if we crack the us, then I've realized that, yeah, there's so many trust issues, feelings of guilt and shame around, say, my partner opening up around what she feels around her money. So the more I've, to answer the pause side, the more I've moved to the S side, it just feels like there's this safety net that is just like become more secure underneath us. Because just as I like, I, I feel like as I loosen um, the rigidity on how I viewed how money should be, there's more trust that comes into a relationship. My wife starts to see that I see her, I understand her, that her voice matters. And more than just asking her like, hey, what do you think? It's like surrendering to the us that I actually care what you think, not the lip service of asking it. And that is creating this interesting bond like 15 years into our relationship that I realized that that was one of the biggest financial costs in my portfolio is that the detachment of that emotional bond. Wow. Oh my gosh. This is incredible. I just, I mean, I don't, there's so many roads to run down, but I want to be a good listener and just. Maybe you can just be my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in this hour for whatever therapeutic value I have, you're welcome. Uh, but I do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, hmm. It's humbling to hear that journey, and I'm sure it's been humbling to walk on that and seeing that us and the 
how we're doing together. I couldn't help as you were describing that to me, flashing back to being newly married an emerging expert in financial planning, all of my Dave Ramsey skills. Mm -hmm. I know what's best for us. I know how to pay down the debt. And then I get my CFP and it's like, okay, this is how compound interest works. And if we want to retire, we want to retire. We'd read. I want to retire early. This is how much we need to save per month. You can make more money than me. So you need to go do this. And I was, I was like totally self-centered about all of it without even recognizing it. And you know, it's just like, as you were saying, it's like deep into me realizing just how self-centered I was in caring and loving for my wife because I knew so much about how money worked. And, <laughs> and in some ways there was a deferment to me because I was the money expert. And I don't know if that happened for you in your relationship with your wife where she was like, well, you know how money works. So, okay, have at it. But I, I certainly see that in a number of relationships that I've worked with now. And finding our way to that us is really powerful. Yeah. And you know, when you say that deferment, um, I had that my wife's a public health nurse. Um, you know, growing up her story around money was her parents really, um, showed love through money in, in to some degree. And so what that just made her not so interested in the, the technical side of money. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I, it, this is that system of male or masculine toxicity is that I adopted that into that role and that system of, I need to take this. I'm doing the best thing for my family. And similar to your story, I take these courses, CFP, these other designation, and it's just boosting my, uh, my peacocking. And I'm so consumed with I, that I don't see us. And that the, I took that deferment. When you said deferment, I, I, it spoke to me because I took that as like, like, this is my job. Like, get out of my way. Here I go. And I thought it was for us. But the more I sat with who is this for and what does money actually mean to me? Like, does it mean fracturing a relationship? Does it mean not taking the time to actually understand myself? Because money for me was a huge distraction uh, from uh, getting to know myself. The more I sat with that, I thought like, what the like now is the time that we have We have two young kids three and six and like what am i doing ruminating over the best financial decisions that we can have when i all i have is right now and it hit me one time we were in mexico in a airbnb and i was spending the evening looking up purchasing uh real estate in mexico because i want to be more cost effective the next time that we go so that our family can enjoy longer stay but i'm in Mexico doing this. And that is not about us. <laughs> My wife's sitting on the patio having a, a beer and here I am like, hey, check out this condo. And and she's, oh yeah, that looks good. Like being kind and gentle to for a certain degree. But I go back to the cost of doing that. The non-financial cost is huge. It's like intimacy wears out, trust wears out, like all these things. Yeah. Instead of sitting there on the back patio or wherever it was that she was sitting at this Airbnb and reflecting on the day and the experiences you had and what you saw, you were living into the future about how to be, and it, it's not just the good intention of like having a place for your family to stay, but it was so money driven. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can do this cheaper and better if I own a property. And, you know, it's so funny that you're saying that it, it really probably is striking a moment of clarity for me. I'm going to have to really dig into this, but. 
you know, I've kind of had my head set around, I want to get a lake house for our family. And mm. you know, you start looking at like how much it costs to rent a lake house and, and, and I try to rationalize in my head, oh, well, if we own it and then like rent it out as an Airbnb, then we'll get free. But you, you're highlighting such an important concept, the soft cost. Mm-hmm. Because like how much more time am I working long hours now and and then the intellectual labor when I'm home, when I'm thinking about this place and it's like, wait, but did you read a book with your kid this morning? Did you play Legos with them? Did you, and all these things. And so we can get so focused on finding optimal financial outcomes that we're missing the time to be relational and just be with our kids. So you said money was, was and may still be one of your biggest distractions. Mm-hmm. And I say was because I don't think I can ever get this thing figured out. This, this like third wheel in my relationship with my wife, this thing called money. And I mean, I can't really run from it because we do need it. So I need to learn how to like coexist with it. I, I feel like over the last five years, I've learned a lot about myself, which in turn has helped me understand my relationship with money. And I feel like now I'm at a place where I can talk about this openly and feel comfortable that if people want to like, wow, that guy's all crazy. That, and that's okay <laughs> because there's a lot more moments of like at our one of uh, my work, we talk about one thing that we're grateful for every morning. And one of my staff said, you know, last year, I feel like you said walking your kids to school like 80% of the times throughout the year. And I didn't, it didn't occur to me. But I say this because you talk about building the Legos is like last three years or so, I've been able to take my kids down the street to school and pick them up, whether my wife joins me some days when she can with her work schedule or or she just goes. But it's it's allowed me to dive into my relationship with money. And what does this actually mean to realize that? Yeah, this time is the now, like, like, stop thinking about this condo, so to speak, that is in the future. Like, this is the time I have now. So my relationship, I feel with money now is that I can dance with it. And I'm not a good dancer normally. But uh, with money, I feel like I'm able to dance with it. And I've been able to detach with it where there's been things that we've bought or purchased that I would have never done that because it just that's silly to spend money on. But now it seems like this this emotional connection or the power it was giving to money is starting to dissipate, which is now allowing me to move towards this more us in our relationship with my wife, because I'm not attached to the outcome. And that was a big thing I had to learn to detach myself from a desired outcome, especially in financial decisions. So it's like, what do you think about this decision? Even though like she can feel that I'm like already got the decision made in. So that's where I I've noticed the most benefits is detaching from that desired outcome. You know, it feels so counterintuitive, especially as the financial planner in me hears that, because it's like financial planning is based in desired outcomes. Yeah. Right? Like, what is it that you want to have happen? How do you organize everything to make it happen in that way? And so I hope I'm not missing what you're saying is that you you can let go of some of that and just be present to where your wife wants to go with things, maybe not fully giving up your own interest, but it's like not having a foregone conclusion that we need to save $500 a month at 7% interest um, Mm -hmm. so that we can have an extra year of retirement funds, whatever, uh, you know, that that was. (laughs) And it's not a, I'm throwing out, like I'm a CFP financial planner too. And a lot of this was against the grain, 
But what it spoke to me is like, that is intimacy, at least <laughs> maybe my wife would disagree. But for me to like, throw out all my expectations to move towards our or the us expectations and the desired outcome or detaching would be like kind of you alluded to where I'd be like listening to a fire podcast movement. I listened to some family that did something neat. I'm like, okay, make it totally on my own making this decision. We got to cut grocery costs. We got to cut this, cut this. We got to save here. We have to have X amount of money by the time we're 40 and this, as opposed to now, I mean, I'm optimistic guy, but I don't know what the world's going to look like when I'm 45. I'm 37 right right now. And I want to be directionally correct for financial goals, like saving adequately amount, directionally correct, knowing that I have never put a financial plan in place. This is the craziest part is like, I've rarely put a financial plan in place that, well, I haven't because I haven't been in the industry. 30 years later, it worked out. Right. (laughs) And so (laughs) now I'm like, wait, let's just get directionally right so that we have that, you know, that hyperbolic discounting version of us in the future being like, okay, we're going to take care of that person. Yes. But yes. not obsess over the in the day-to-day things that happen with money. And the way we kind of set up is, I mean, this silly automate thing, automate some savings and then whatever happens, happens. <laughs> it, it's such a more relaxed approach, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. you know, cause I think, you know, the CFP and people listening, we can't, I think for some of us, the CFP only magnifies our own financial anxiety mm. because it shows you like all the ways that it could go wrong and all the ways it could like, and it's like at some point we can't fully control what happens in our life, what happens in the world. I mean, COVID certainly showed that to many people, but what I like this language that you're, you're describing, I may not get it quite right, but it's directionally right. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? Mm-hmm. And that gives that sense is like, I have a direction. I'm planning for this future person that I'm going to be, but there's kind of this, I have it. Like if you put your arms out in front of you and there's kind of a range and like, Mm. I know I'm going to end up in the future. I have high, you know, high likelihood, but whether I'm to the right of this image of myself or to the left of this image, I don't really know. And that's part of the mystery of life. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, like I got to make sure my wife is there with me too, because otherwise I've made all these plans and it's for not. That's the big mistake I see a lot of times is like, you're not spending the time building the relational intimacy. You can spend 20, 30 years building a great portfolio and asset base and then end up divorced because there's no relationship. Yeah. You got nothing to show for it. And then what? Like, that's the biggest financial cost of all. And and sometimes that just naturally might happen and that, you know. Yeah. But that's the thing I'm really trying to be curious about right now is how much am I, this rigidity that I had attached to the outcome that these checkpoints of like, I got to have this much saved up or net worth by this time. Oh, yeah. Exchanging that for like, what about just like, what is the power of us? Like two people actually intimately like knowing each other at like, like the depths of their own humanity like that. You can't put a dollar on that, but that's pretty neat. And then when you're raising children to, to feel that and be in that environment, that's the focus right now. And um, something that I'm doing right now through the whole experience, I'm writing an album. Uh, uh-huh. My friend of mine's uh, this root hub, his name, he's lives in Hawaii. He's writing it. So we're collaborating. And I'm like spilling out all this information, but he came up with this one, one lyric when we were talking and it really resonated with me that, 
he said, uh, money's not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sail. And uh, that for me is like the, the, the shift in my relationship with money where I always looked at money as the boat of life. Like you need this. And I, I acknowledge that I'm fortunate that I don't need money. Like I'm beyond the threshold of just poverty yeah. or low income that. I can't have a wind in my sail, so to speak, for money. Yeah, but right. I always looked at money was the answer. Like, when I get enough. And then, geez, you reflect back and be like, I'm making so much more than I did back then. And I'm still in this pursuit of money. And right. so this change of perspective is that, yeah, money's not the boat of life for me. It's the wind in the sail. Meaning it could bring me to happy places. It can help move me in the direction I want to go. Right. But I can't confuse it with the boat. But it's so powerful to recognize that and that transformational journey. And, you know, everything that you're saying, Sean, is like, man, that is the thoughts in my head. Because, <laughs> I mean, I still find myself like, by this age, I need to have this net worth. By this age, I need to have this accomplishment. And, and kind of that, and that, it's a trap. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I have to continuously work on it because when I get in that state of mind, man, that's when I really get compulsive about work and start disconnecting relationally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a it's a real process and it's ongoing and you know I know you've referenced the fire community and with all due respect for that community there is a side of that community where it's really compulsive and hyper focused on one aspect of money and wealth and it's when do you finally arrive in that land of wealth or abundance and we are fortunate you know both of us to live in households with a good income and a mm -hmm. growing net worth and so we don't have that, we're not in that survival stage around money. And yet, mm -hmm. so many people in our position are still living as if they're still in survival mode around money. Mm -hmm. When their direction and their plan, assuming most general things work out, they, they'll be okay. Um, mm -hmm. I want to go back. You said money is a third wheel. And I love <laughs> that phrase because, you know, I, everyone has that, knows what that's like, that third <laughs> wheel. Like, man killing my game like you're, you're, you're helping me but you're killing my game now like it's time to you know and so but then you said i'm learning to coexist with money and because the the other side of and I, on this journey i've seen it for me is i've been hyper focused on money and then when i realized like that's problematic i went to the other extreme I was like screw it money doesn't mean anything it's worthless <laughs> i'm not going to pay attention to it at all i ran from it yeah and now I feel like in the last few years and probably even in the last six months, there's been so much more clarity about living in the middle place with money. Like it is going to be a, an essential part of my life. There's no avoiding that. Mm -hmm. But if it's ruminating on it and obsessing over it, that's problematic. And if mm -hmm. it's turning a blind eye and not paying attention to how much I'm spending in certain areas, that it's going to be problematic and it's going to show up. And so it's, how do I live with this awareness that money is going to be a continuous reality, but it doesn't have to be the object of my obsession? Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. 
how do I live with this awareness that money is going to be a continuous reality, but it doesn't have to be the object of my obsession? I'm excited to share my perspective on that. And I, I want to make a quick comment. I hope I didn't come across as um, judgmental for the fire movement because I feel like they're allowing people to think differently amongst it. And Absolutely. I think that's the beautiful thing about personal finance being personal is like those rules of thumbs hit each of us personally differently. And that was like yes. fire to my fire. <laughs> like that's what I needed is to focus more on that, like that narrative. Right. So anyhow, I think it's a wonderful thing. It's just for me, I needed to pump the brakes and be like, why am I doing this? So, um, no, I, I'm totally with you. And I, I'm glad you bring that up because when sometimes need that catalyst to realize we can live life financially a different mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. But for some of us, it's finding that balance too. Yeah. That second part to the question, this balance, uh, my wife and I have been talking a lot about like the middle road or the balance, like all or nothing thinking. Yeah. Uh -huh. And for me, this coexisting with money came out of like a necessity. I wasn't curious about this and just like decided to, to, to dive into it. It was like, I just felt something was wrong. And the more I jumped into myself and found out where those thoughts were like why was i so obsessive on wanting to get a net worth by this time why was i updating my net worth statement like so frequently why was i doing this it was really going into the origin of my story and around money and as a, a long story short i was a super shy kid growing up i was told i was super shy so i'm reinforcing this narrative this story that i'm shy uh, in university, I remember like in a group assignment doing a presentation and they call us up. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like staring at the ground when I go up. It's like my turn to present on some sort of business case finding. And I mumbled the whole thing as like the 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 armpit sweat was like dripping on the floor. <laughs> and I mumbled because yeah. I didn't even want them to hear me. And so I was super, super shy graduate, I got a job that paid decent money and people are like, oh, look how much money you're making now. This, this, that. I'm like, like, people are talking to me. People are talking to me, money. And I'm a Canadian, as you mentioned earlier. We love hockey. I grew up always watching hockey, obsessed over hockey as well. These guys are like making tons of money. They're always smiling after their hockey games, showing their their t or, uh, houses on their, they had a TV show that was like MTV yeah. Cribs for Canadian hockey players. So I was like, money is the answer. And yeah. I went on this story that money gave me a voice to be seen and heard and valued because people actually talked to me. So I was telling myself a story again. They probably were talking to me regardless, but that money was this, the boat of my life to that lyric. And it wasn't until I like dove in doing some like inner critic work that I realized that my inner money critic felt safe and comfort and scene when I was making money or talking about money. And I went down there and had a little conversation with this little mushroom cut kid and, uh, and just let him know that I've got it from here. I'm going to take it over. He helped me out when we were younger, but uh, now it's time for me to run the show, especially around my relationship with money. And now it's more about noticing when he comes up and that I feel has allowed me to then, notice so i can kind of stop him which has enabled me to coexist more with a third wheel in my relationship which i also realize will always be there and that curiosity to understand instead of running from it i feel has helped me 
to dance with this inner money critic who will always be there. And my wife's inner money critic will always be there too. And it's acceptance. I found that really has allowed me to be like, okay, it is there. I accept this finally, but how can I just dance with it? I love that. And I think it's so beautiful. And for those that are not familiar with inner critic and inner child work, it's really a way of seeing that we all have parts to ourselves that exist in our psychology, that it's very normative. It's not abnormal. And it's learning to attune to the different voices in our head. And we have memories along our whole developmental arc of interacting with money and, and the things that are being told about us and that power of being the shy kid. And then like how money kind of like put this new lens on you. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, now I'm attractive and now mm-hmm. people want to talk to me. And look, that's how it is out in society. You're watching the MTV cribs of hockey players, that, which I would love to see a hockey player's crib. I think, <laughs> I don't know, what do they have? Do they have ice rinks in their basement? Some of them, or? oh yeah, gyms and yeah. yeah. Do you know who Connor yeah. McDavid is? I don't. Oh, the best hockey player in the world who plays for our team. Anyways, they did a whole big <laughs> thing on his house this year, so... I'll send you the link. Uh, Please, please send me the link. I think that would be great. We'll put it into the show notes too. (laughs) But it's that growing social awareness too that I think so many of us confront, right? In my coming of age, it was Robin Leach and the lifestyle of the rich and famous. And it's as a culture and society, we really magnify wealthy people as being kind of larger than life and better off than the rest of us. And so it also becomes a natural path of like, oh, well, that's what I need to do. And Finding that balance between vilifying wealth and idolizing it is really a, an important maturing process, I think, as we engage in life and money is your money won't solve all our problems, but it sure will help with some of them. Mm-hmm. And, and finding, again, that middle road with, with money. So, yeah, sorry, I took us around a number of places, but inner critic no. work is huge. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to to check it out, even work with a therapist familiar with that. Wow. Uh, yeah. And the, the inner critic work, looking back at very functional childhood, my parents were around, they were loving. And I just, at first, my defensiveness struck up like, this is not for me. I'm okay. And yeah, I just totally embrace it now and being like, what is there, like, there's only to gain to understand more about yourself. And that I feel like is what's enabled me to do better dancing with my money story or this third wheel. Like I said earlier, is like, I can recognize when things come up and be like, okay, I see. And not get defensive. Cause that was a big thing for me is as a shy Uh kid, you're going to take my money away. We're going to spend on what, if my wife wants to spend something that defensive comes out. And then I try to like, which now I realize shame her, I will try to use a financial logical conclusion why that is a bad decision. And then she can't argue with it. And that is not us. Wow. Would you, would you be willing to share one of your old, like she wants to do this, your logic closing? Oh gosh, everything. Uh, no, <laughs> no. Okay. So like, we like want to spend more money at the end of the month or we want to spend on, on like recreation things. Yeah. And, Oh, and I can't believe I'm saying this live, but or not live, but recorded, but I would be like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I would touch her because that's what you're supposed to do. Even though that okay. was the impact was very nothing at all. But in my head, I'm like, I'm doing this properly. I'm touching her. I'm talking to calm voice. I'm like, I work with couples like us all the time. 
And we uh-huh. already spend way more than anyone else. And no one spends as much as this as we, we want to. And we actually have more than most people. So we should just be happy with what, what we have. Uh, and how bad is that? And I'll be like, well, we got to live within our budget as well. Add this budget. Like, we got to live within our budget. Like, I do the expenses. It's right. a zero-sum game. We can't overshoot because then we're going to be in debt. And <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Rationalize with logic without inc- – like, that's where the us I, – I, I keep going back to this us, but there's no us in there. And perhaps I was right, but my approach was not right. Like, perhaps what I mean is, like, we don't want to spend more than we make. But right. there's a different approach that brings us together. So what does that look like now? So now it's it's still, we're still trying to figure out the balance. And I think with these two third wheels, our own inner critics and our own money, I don't know if we ever can get this aspiration. I think it's aspirational goal. But what it looks like more now is I still manage most of the the finances. And that's because she does a lot of the health in the family. But now I'm trying to take it as that detached outcome, being like, okay, let's open this up together. Let's look yeah. in. Let's collaborate. Let's not have Sean just be like, oh, we're doing this. It's more mm-hmm. saying, hey, what do you think of doing something like this? Or, or bias that I had is I see all the finances. So if, say, I wanted to make a larger purchase, I would bring it up with her, but it would be like with lots of conviction, lots of like, hey, we had yeah. excess amount this month. Whereas right. if she brings over something, now I'm just kind of hold, trying to hold space and be open and not let Mr. Shy is what I call him, the inner critic. Yeah. Mr. Shy come up and be like, no, no. And in fact, maybe it's a little ironic, but that drilling in is someone's drilling a a wire into our house because she's always wanted a hot tub and we're getting a hot tub installed and <laughs> and it shouldn't have been but that was stretching for me to be like whoa <laughs> but anyhow i think you're bringing up a huge gold vein not just a nugget but a gold vein because the challenge i see so often and when one partner manages the household finances in the kind of the practical day-to-day but as, as well as the long-term vision and they know how it all works there's so many assumptions and understandings that are built into all of that, that the partner that isn't as engaged is at a huge disadvantage Mm -hmm. when they come to make a financial request because they, they inherently can't see the bigger picture in part because they're not engaged in enough. And sometimes because they don't have enough financial literacy. And I don't know that's true for your wife, but when I work with couples. That's one of the big things I'm evaluating for is how is a person with greater financial literacy or knowledge holding that relative to their spouse? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there are the concepts like compound interest that help you understand how much you need to save now to have in 20 years or 30 years. And it helps you understand the cost of things. And if your partner doesn't understand that and you're trying to explain why you can't do that, it can be hard for them to connect with it. Really, when there's a big difference in knowledge of understanding about how money works, it takes some extra care, I would say. I 100% agree. And like, there's this this, uh, this bias that we know. So we have this like enthusiasm that comes to the conversations. And our partners, you know, they, they want to respect us and they want to like listen. Like, right. You would know more than this. I feel like we have a desire to get along. And so... I can imagine and experience this, and I see this with other individuals that we talk about, is that like avoiding conflict is, you know, (laughs) partners do that. And I starting to see the more I'm talking with, engaging with people is that maybe there is a voiceless 
person with a voice that's not being heard, who's just been getting along, but really underneath that, there's this desire to actually be heard. And so I think anyone who manages the money, uh, I think it's so important to like authentic check-ins to say like, is this power dynamic equal? Um, cause I don't know if it is, if there's one person who manages the money, cause there's this perceived control. And then if you put the mail in there, there's that toxic masculinity of like, I've got this figured out. And to your point, yeah, my wife, she's a public health nurse. She did not study finances. So she, her financial literacy is much lower than mine because just yeah. her scope of practice. And then there's a level, especially the way I hold myself. I'm not careful of like coming to me. This, this is, I think it's important to say, but it, it hurts to a degree that this was happening. Is like with her tail between her leg being like, could we buy this? Because there's oh, this yeah. guilt that I should know more about money or I'm shameful that I actually don't know as much about money as you. And I'm just going to like kind of ask that. And if I get facial leakage or oh, what, then boom, reinforces her inner child. And yeah. I don't think it's isolated to my wife at all is that there's this power dynamic where and and it wasn't like for us, it was just, I don't know if it was through kids or what, where it started coming out where I thought everything was fine until I really dove in. And I feel like that's a part of intimacy is those day to day. Like I've always heard intimacy is moment to moment. And yes. that's bringing her into the us around this. And, and Sean, the financial planner can't be our financial planner. And you always hear that, don't be your own financial planner, but this is on a deeper level. And I don't want to take away like the extreme value of compound interest and all these financial techniques that a CFP has. I just go back to this lyric, money's not the boat of life. And if I'm thinking about boating across, he lives in Hawaii. If I want to go boat to root up in Hawaii, I need a strong like foundation of a boat. Right. And so like, you can have all the money in the world, but if that foundation is cracked or if that foundation is weakened, then well, and I it doesn't matter the size of the sales, I don't think. Well, I all, I think it all the more, right, is like the boat, I don't know if I'm playing with your metaphor correctly, if your boat is relational health and intimacy and really knowing each other, mm-hmm. and you don't have that, then you have a small dinghy. Yes. <laughs> And then if you get a bunch of money blowing in the sale of that dinghy, you're going to capsize the darn thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's some extent that as your your wealth and income increases, you really have to work on building your relationship and getting it bigger and stronger so it can tolerate the, the influence and impact of money in your life. And so it seems like the more, you know, as that income and wealth increases, I've really seen str- couples struggle paradoxically more mm-hmm. because it raises whole new sets of questions that they've never even considered before that you didn't have to ask at the lower levels of income and wealth, but now that you do. I'm thinking about one couple where the husband had thought he was doing a good job and busy working and traveling for work and making more money every year, a bigger bonus. And the wife was going along and saying, you know, yeah, okay, I understand this is the trade-off and we'll do this house project. But she wasn't actually on board, mm-hmm. but she didn't know how to say that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where if you're in the quote unquote responsible position for the money, you've got to be really aware that your partner may be going along to get along. Mm-hmm. And if you don't make it safe for them to say, I don't agree. And if you don't 
ask them explicitly, they may not be at a place psychologically where they can even do that. And I know that that's part of, was a real gap in my own marriage. And part of what led me here, and you sharing your story has really helped me understand my story, is, you know, my wife is very smart, probably, I mean, yours, she's a nurse, she's a smart, smart woman. Mine, you know, was a, is a dentist. And so, in some sense, I was like, she's so smart, how could she not understand this? <laughs> But she had a completely different frame of reference than me. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, but I couldn't understand that, like, just because I know how this works doesn't mean that she knows how this works. And just because what I, the words I communicate only reflect a small portion of my total understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you talked about earlier with your wife and your, and your own inner critics, and you both have them. Man, I didn't have that as a concept either. And, I would have, you know, I'd pay a million bucks now to have that at the beginning of my marriage. <laughs> it's just understanding, like, we both have our own inner money critics and our own money histories. Like, oh, I, I could only imagine how many moments of disappointment and frustration would have been saved. I feel like that's, like, lesson number one for couples. <laughs> like, it should be. <laughs> yes. And because, yeah, I mean, and it doesn't go away, you know, like, these feelings don't go away. And I think that acceptance of them, the acceptance of the messiness also in terms of like, we're not going to get this right. Yeah. And that's why I go back to this directionally right is like the rigidity that I had around us was really, really like suffocating us without knowing. And like that going along to get along really resonate when you said that, because this was happening unaware to me and us really. and so I guess my message on that was it's not like it was this blaring bro- sign in the middle of the night being like, go look at this now. No. Six years ago, I wouldn't have dreamt I was talking about this. I would have thought, not me. Well, I didn't even know a lot of this stuff existed. And that's where it's like, if you don't study psychology actively, you're not going to know a lot of these things exist. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't studied psychology and particularly personal development and healing psychology, Things like the inner critic are, you may have heard that today for the first time and been like, what the heck are these guys talking about? And yet, both you and I didn't know what an inner critic was, mm-hmm. you know, not that long ago. But no. it's, it's been studying psychology, being in my own therapy, talking with other people that are on the journey has been hugely beneficial because there are noble psychological processes. The mind is not as mysterious as we might initially think. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's always a mystery to how the mind works, but there's a lot of stuff that's pretty well mapped out about how the mind and brain work. Mm-hmm. And we, if you just get that under your belt, you're already light years ahead. Mm-hmm. Sean, as we wrap this up, what's a piece of advice, guidance, question you would you'd leave people with? I guess my, my thing to ponder is that are we, and I speak from experience on this one, are we avoiding emotional discomfort of like diving into ourselves to actually understand ourselves. I know I was, and I guess something to think about is can money offer a window into ourselves so that we can understand ourselves on a more intimate level that then helps us show up in a relational matter for our spouses. And who knows the compound interest of that? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah, personal growth and development and the compound effect. And yeah. I do think there is a compound effect to this. Like when you start on this journey of learning about yourself, and it's going to feel like nothing's happening. And it might even for a while feel like things are getting worse. Mm-hmm. I know they did for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But 
if you stick with it, man, it you come out fundamentally different. Yeah, and I just last thing is money offers such a at least for me, and I guess if I go back to this toxic masculinity role, is it offers a relatively easy access into ourselves because like money is so top of mind. Oh, I think that's the next interview. I love it. <laughs> I love it. There's so many paths to run on that. But Sean, if people wanted to connect with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, they can uh, go to my website, themosthatedfword.com. And uh, there's a contact me on there and information about what I'm doing. And that's the best spot. That's awesome. I'll definitely put a link to that. I, I love the most hated F word. I'm so jealous that you came <laughs> up with that. I, that's part of the growth in your phone. I can just own my jealousy. It's not yeah. going to hurt the relationship. Yeah. But yeah, this has been such a treat. Sean, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Ed. I appreciate the work you're doing. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at... Ed.